One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the unfolding sleaze scandal and you ask us, how do we fix it? So we're in the midst of what seems to be unfolding as an all-round Westminster sleaze scandal. Geoffrey Cox, the former Attorney General at the moment, is the one getting the most heat for his legal work outside of Parliament. Stephen, you've kind of been looking into how these kind of accusations, well, how they'll affect Boris Johnson's leadership, but also what they say about him and his relationship with his MPs as well. What have you heard? So several Conservative MPs WhatsApped me an observation, well, a tweet by my Newsnight's policy editor, Lewis Goodall. He said, for context, we're 25% of the way through Owen Patterson's 30-day suspension. If, like, it had just happened, he would be a quarter of the way through it now. The reason why several Conservative MPs WhatsApped me this tweet is because they thought it was a very astute point and they're very angry about the fact it's an astute point because so to update for our listeners who you know been on holiday or living under a rock or you know in some ways have somehow have missed uh, the events of, of, of the last uh, couple of weeks the central issue is the government voted not to uphold the suspension of Owen Patterson and to rewrite the stand committee creating a government majority on it you know doing all sorts of stuff which caused a huge reaction several MPs have said to me and the thing which always spooks MPs is when the people who write them emails and letters are people they don't know. If you've been an MP for more than three years, I am regularly told, you you broadly know who your letter writers are. And I'm not saying they don't care about those people, but, you know, you kind of go like, oh, so-and-so, they care about animal rights. Oh, so-and-so, they, you know, think that I'm causing a white genocide yeah like they 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 have a you know they have a a sense of i'd like to make it clear i'm not equating those two those, those, what, only one of those, those is, two hobby horses yeah yeah those two perfect perfectly comparable but um the reason why i make that point is that person will often also be someone who sends a lot of emails about everything right and what spooks long-term mps is when they suddenly go like well who the hell's that and interestingly um Philip Cowley did some research into this on the poll tax, which exactly echoed what MPs were telling me about Barnard Castle and what they're telling me now. Well, what spooked Tory MPs about their postbags during the poll tax was there were people who'd never written before and they were clearly using their own words. It was, it was not a default kind yeah, of it was a spon- letter. a spontaneous thing. Mm. And there is clearly a spontaneous level of anger about... Um, well, this is the interesting thing is, what is it about? Because in the kind of Westminster jargon, it's kind of metastasized into people talking about second jobs... There are kind of two entirely separate buckets of second jobs. There's the kind of, I have a profession and I I feel a need or a desire to keep my hand in on. On the conservative side, those tend to be accountants, GPs, lawyers. On the Labour side, that tends to be 
doctors, nurses, lawyers. I'm, I'm generalising here. Now, broadly, the thing that lots of those MPs who themselves do second jobs have said is that they haven't received personalised complaints about those second jobs. Um, although that is attracting a lot of the coverage. Obviously, Jeffrey Cox is attracting a lot of coverage for his legal work. Yeah. The thing that I think people are actually properly angry about are these weird consultancies, you know, like I'm paid £500 an hour to, like, consult with, you know, Weedle Weedle Energy. And, you know, then I get up and I go, do you know what's terrible? The energy price cap. And, yeah, I think that is essentially the cause of the anger. Lots of Conservative MPs basically feel like this big button mark, don't press. The Prime Minister just like, why not press it? They said, and now we're all, and then they used the word rhyming with ducked, that I wouldn't use on this podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, you gave some interesting examples of that kind of work in your morning call email this morning, which I would encourage all of our listeners to read. So one backbench MP called Mark Pawsey, uh, earning £30,000 as chair of a packaging group who argued in the Commons it is not the packaging manufacturer that is the polluter people are um, and then another example uh, the Tory MP Philip Dunn earning £425 an hour working for an aerospace company and advocating for more defence spending so I think those two are really good representative examples of how the consultancy or advocacy work can go wrong for an MP because it just opens up such clear vulnerability to accusations of conflict of interest. And also, I do think in terms of the British public's perspective on this, I think, you know, what you were saying about the difference between keeping, as an MP, keeping your hand in your profession, so as a lawyer, as a doctor, etc., and being one of these strange sort of so-called consultants who basically trade off their influence as an MP and their knowledge of the political process to advise, in inverted commas, a private company, because you're only in that role because of your job as an MP, whereas the lawyers have, have already qualified as lawyers before they've got into politics. So I think that that conflict of interest is probably quite clear to the public. But as well as that, I think, you know, there's something quite British, I think, about knowing like who are who's a grifter and who isn't. And I think there is a little bit of uh, cynicism about those kind of consultancy jobs anyway in the wider public. But looking at the public response to it, it really reminded me of this thing that David Dimbleby told me when I interviewed him last year about the turning points that he detected when he was presenting Question Time. And he said the first time that he knew that the expenses scandal was going to be a huge thing and that the public was so riled up about it was in a 2009 episode with Margaret Beckett and Ming Campbell on there trying to defend their sort of second home expenses and other things. And they're both on there sort of saying, well, you know, what we did was within the rules. And Mar there's a moment where Margaret Beckett says, well, I'm not going to pay the money back because it was within the rules. And the audience is absolutely furious. And there's reports from the time saying, you know, I've never seen a question time like it. And that was when David Dimbleby told me that he knew that sort of the public had switched. But what the most interesting part of that little historical nugget is for me is that the MPs almost seem to be sort of suspended in time because they're convincing themselves, well, this because this is within the rules, there's no problem here. And I see parallels with that attitude to now, you know, many MPs are saying, well, all of these second jobs and all of these earnings are within what you're allowed to do as long as you register them. I think, you know, that's obviously that's an argument against the fact that, you know, people are accusing you of misconduct, but it's almost irrelevant. If the public notices something and decides that now they don't like it, that's a turning point. And it's interesting that Geoffrey Cox's defence has been my constituents know about my work and, you know, they've voted me in time and time again. 
okay, that's not necessarily a defence against this kind of turning point that we saw in 2009. Fine, you know, whether or not he was, what he was doing was allowed. I mean, there's some questions about the hearing that he dialed into in Parliament. There's, you know, some grey areas there. But even if everything he was doing was above board, that doesn't mean that it passes the sniff test with the public. So I'd be interested to see, and I think we'll probably know in the next few days whether or not it's going to tip fully into that public sort of awakening, if you like. Yeah, I think you're exactly right about the turning points. And it's not because... So the, one of my always go-to examples is in the 1964-70 to 70 Labour government, which, among other things, started the ball rolling on closing most grammar schools in England. All of the Labour cabinet's children went to private schools, right? Not a single <laughs> one of them state-educated their kids. You look at the data, right? The argument against grammar schools has been validated in spades. But they were embarking on a very controversial education reform to a system none of them were, were in. Do you know one of the things David Cameron is the first person done? He was the first Conservative Prime Minister to send his children to state school because he judged, in my view, correctly that he could not get away with not doing so, given you know, he was, among other things, overseeing quite a radical change to state schools. And I think in some ways this is exact, exactly it, right? There's long been this, not even implied, actually explicitly from a recruitment perspective, particularly among MPs who are also eminent lawyers, of going, look, come to Parliament, you can continue to keep your hand in, and, you know, maybe you'll be Attorney General. And then after you're Attorney General, you'll have an even better set of clients, you know, either it'll be more interesting or, you know, your earning power. I mean, obviously, Jeffrey Cox is a very eminent lawyer and his earning power was already, you know, eye-watering. That has long been the deal. Ditto, say, Mark Pawsey of packaging doesn't kill people, people kill people, uh, fame. Um, that, again, is within the rules, and it's kind of long been established. Like, oh, are you a backbencher who, in the nicest possible way, right, he's been in since 2010, he's, you know, hasn't threatened um, the, the ministerial ladder. Just because you have a bunch of people who are elected and you are kind of rising up the ranks, well, you can get your, your pay rise through consultancy. Or ditto, you know, the... The aerospace guy, Philip Dunn, right? Sacked minister. Okay, you know, don't worry. You can earn back your ministerial, lost ministerial salary and more, right? That's been part of the deal. But the expenses regime was part of the deal. I think it's actually a really interesting example of how, like, the sort of left liberal bias in terms of the personal politics of a lot of people who work in broadcasts actually turns into a sort of pro-conservative bias because the attitudinal bias is basically, oh, well, look, whatever this shyster does, those people in those crummy Brexit towns, it's not going to cut through, is it? They're not going to... So it kind of gets covered as this pointless game by people who, if you, you know, if you opened up the ballot box after they voted, you go like, oh, so you don't think this is a pointless game and you don't like you don't like this. And I think one of the things which has really happened is the second is gone, oh, actually, it turns out those crummy Brexit towns that, you know, we love to condescend by saying, oh, well, you know, the Red Wall doesn't care that this MP's eaten a child. <laughs> like, <laughs> do actually care. And so that is quite dangerous for this prime minister, because I think anything which shakes the part of the reason for his political invincibility is the belief that he is politically invincible. It also exposes the massive divides within the Conservative Party, right? You have a lot of people in marginal seats who, not least because being in a marginal seat is quite an intense job. So A, they're like, well, I can't do this. But also, you know, you have, speaking to someone in 2019, saying, they said, so look, in the last six months, we've retreated on plans to build more houses for my constituents. Uh, they said, but I was marched into the division lobby to vote for a man who just couldn't go, OK, I'll take my lump it's 30 days. And so it exposes all sorts of kind of fissures in the party. And I think it is, I 
Now, I don't think it's going to bring him down. But just as it was a real problem for uh, David Cameron, then obviously he had a very successful expenses crisis. But that so many Tory MPs blamed him for essentially their loss of earnings because of the various changes he put through. And it kind of meant they were out to get him. And you can draw a sort of direct line from people who resented David Cameron in the Conservative Party because of what he did on expenses to him being forced to the Brexit referendum. And of course, without any Brexit referendum, you know, David Cameron has gosh, he's probably had to extend his retirement due to the coronavirus crisis. So he's probably, you know, standing down now as the, you know, like going like, I'm the vaccines, dude. I've successfully sold off every housing association <laughs> property in London. In some ways, how, how lucky we are and that government was disrupting the street. Um, and I do think that this this is an event with a similar potential to just make Boris's life so much more difficult from a kind of the legislative agenda of the government because this does create problems for a lot of Tory MPs and it creates it solely because of a fight they didn't need to pick over Owen Paterson. Yeah, because you have those two groups, don't you? You have Well, there's many groups, like you say, it cuts across a lot of lines, but there are those MPs who don't want to be sullied with these kind of allegations, perhaps the newer ones who are defending more marginal seats and don't want to be lumped in with the expenses scandal era MPs um, who will be furious that they were sort of made to defend that decision only for them to U-turn again and now to be seen as, you know, you're all in it for yourselves. And then there are the others who may lose out uh, on their earnings if there is some kind of change brought in to limit second jobs who will also be furious. And so, you know, I don't think anyone wins from whatever comes out of this. And you mentioned Barnard Castle earlier and sort of what MPs have been telling you about what they were seeing in their mailbags. And I think what's really interesting is that this scandal, although it is the making of, of, of the government, you know, it's, it's, it's a mistake of its own making, it, it also is sort of building off the back of this steady stream of accusations during the pandemic of dodgy contracts, you know, giving contracts to your mates, appointing your mates' mate into important positions during the pandemic, hoping the public wouldn't notice. There's been a steady stream of these stories, plus the sort of massive moment of hypocrisy of Barnard Castle, which people really don't like. And while it would never have sort of so far translated into a salient enough voting issue, I think that it has, has built up in people's minds. You mentioned grammar schools. You know, there's nothing that people dislike more than it's one rule for me and for you or uh, you know I don't practice what I preach and I think this is yet another example of that and it's kind of probably validating the biases that people already had about this government and its conduct during the pandemic so it hasn't happened in a vacuum yes it's a it's a fault of the government's own making but it also builds on other flaws that this government um, has been revealed to have If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. In the aftermath of Owen Paterson's resignation, there has been a lot of discussion about how much MPs should be paid. Would it be workable or desirable to tie MPs' salaries to the median national income? 
This question comes from James, a concerned Sugar Babes fan from North London. Thanks, James. That's a, a great question. So I think it would be workable, right? I mean, yeah, it would cause a lot of, a lot of hilarious problems uh, <laughs> in terms of parliamentary management. I don't think it would be desirable, however. For some reason, there's a corner of like the political internet and the opinion sphere for which almost any problem involving MPs, the solution is to increase MPs' pay. One, it's a very good salary, right? Just in, in national 82,000. Yeah. But if you, if you look at MPs' previous jobs, it's pretty clear the salary is not a deterrent to people taking a significant pay cut. But the interesting thing is there is a slight deterrent effect in terms of the salary in a, immediately around the MP's salary, as it were. So people earning about 70000 to about uh, 150000 a lot of those occupations, so you kind of see this, you know, like, there are fewer people who've been, you know, NHS registrars and there are people who've been doctors. There are fewer people who've been head teachers at large, big uh, inner city secondary schools than there are classroom teachers, you know, that, that kind of thing. And speaking to people in both Labour and the Liberal Democrats, one of the things they really say they fascinatingly struggle with is people who are part of their 100 club so that's people who give 100 pounds a month to the party and that that in those parties will tend to be people who for sort of glamour reasons they'd quite like to run as parliamentary candidates you know theater directors documentary makers you know people who've set up their own like small businesses ceos of like domestic violence charities or sustainability charities or, or various things and people who are you know they're in the 100 club because they're earning about 70 to 90 to 120 so they feel they can give 100 pounds to labor or the lib dems every you know every every month and for them partly because often you know this is a bit of a stereotype about the backgrounds of wealthy people who donate to different parties but there is truth in the stereotype and wealthy people who donate to labor and the democrats tend to be people who haven't necessarily come from money so they are cash rich but they aren't that asset rich those people are a bit like oh but this is like a job in the public eye where i'd take like a 10 grand pay cut Thanks, but no thanks. And it's why, you know, ultimately, like, maybe if you really want to, you go, a head teacher at a school in London shouldn't have to take a pay cut to become an MP, or, you know, the CEO of a local authority shouldn't have to take a pay cut to be an MP. Fine, maybe you, you do want to raise it to that. But if you imagine that same deterrent effect of, oh, this is a 10 grand pay rise for a worse standard of being a more difficult job, or a 10 pound pay cut at the median income, right? So you imagine then what mm. you're instead doing is you're having that deterrent effect at, like, the... 20 to 40k band yeah and you throw in the other big problem we have in terms of attracting normal yeah people on normal incomes to become mps which is how expensive it is to to run for parliamentary selection i am quite fussed about the someone on 40k goes nah i'm not going to become an mp someone on 20k goes no i'm not going to be an mp but i think the reason why this is an interesting question and i'm very aware i am you know rabbiting a lot, even by my standards, is that it, um, it exposes why the just pay them more, that would stop the corruption thing, misunderstands not just how politics works, but also how an economy works. Like, the reason, like, like if you were to pay uh, MPs, just pick any, any number you like, 40 grand, 30 grand, 20 grand, 10 grand, 400 grand, the consultancy fee goes up or goes down relative to what they earn, right? Like, when I was first hired by the New Statesman, my salary at the New Statesman reflected my salary at the Telegraph. If the starting salary at the Telegraph had been higher, that wouldn't have made me less likely to go to the New Statesman later on. It would have just changed the salary I was on at the New Statesman. You are, in politics, always going to have a problem that, if you don't prohibit it, 
it will always be my in my interest as you know the CEO of you know Bush Tobacco to give MPs an extra ten percent uplift to their salary to be on my board to give me advice. Changing the number that I am giving the ten percent uplift does not change the incentive. I think a lot of the, oh, just pay MPs more and it fixes the problem, is just a kind of like people who have like a single transferable take who haven't really thought about how an economy works. But yeah, yeah the bigger know? picture. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I mean, let's think about the figures here because MPs earn 82 grand. Any MP who says that they think that they should earn more you know, it comes in for a lot of criticism. I had a bit of a front row seat on that kind of thing when I interviewed Peter Bottomley, who's the longest serving MP, and he made that argument. He said MPs should earn as much as GPs. And his argument tied to what you were talking about with head teachers and, uh, you know, school leaders and things. He was saying, you know, we don't want people to feel like they would take a big pay cut to, to go into politics who are from these kind of industries where they could really add something to political life. Now, he got absolutely rinsed for it I'd say by the public I was interested in, in seeing the, the reaction from people and so he forwarded me many many of the emails that he was receiving from constituents and they were apoplectic so I don't think you can really ever make that argument properly politically even if those commentators that you talk about who always make this argument carry on doing so so the practicality I think is not there Reducing the salary to the median salary, which is about 31,461. I looked it up just now. I mean, it would still bring about the same problem, which is you would still get those outside earnings if the system isn't changed relative to your salary. Therefore, you would still be vulnerable to the same headline, MP earns double MP's salary in two months or whatever. You know, it's all relative and people will be furious. And in, in, in a way, people will be able to relate more to it if more people earn that salary. So I'm not sure if it would work politically either. Solutions-wise, it is really hard. I think something about limiting how much an MP can earn outside of their sort of baseline MP's earnings would probably make a little bit more sense. I don't know what you think. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one because I think the other sort of flip side of is, is would MPs being paid the median income make them more responsive to the concerns of people mm. on median income? I see the logic for it, but I think it doesn't work for a couple of reasons. The first is that because of the number of hilarious ways that British childcare policy is so badly devised, right, the problem of childcare wipes out the second earner's salary basically is true no matter where you are on the income distribution because the more you and your partner are earning the more hours you have the more hours you have the more expensive your childcare becomes because you know you can't put them in a nursery full of time so you have like a more bespoke thing which is more expensive but all of them have the same problem because British childcare policy is so bad and MPs haven't fixed that I mean, I just basically think that um, if you or I uh, had a side hustle, or indeed, right, take my eye column, right? Mm. When I got the eye column, you know, I had to ask Jason, the editor, he could say yes or no. I just think we should just make MPs do a vote. Yeah, you know, like, you know, we have a re we have recourse, we ask constituents their opinion all the time. And, you know, you could have them as broad or as narrow. I think, you know, it feels to me reasonable enough for a practicing lawyer, a practicing accountant or a practice. Yeah, I don't think like Rosanna Allen Khan or indeed Jeffrey Cox should have to be like, lads, I need you to vote again about whether or not I'm going to go and do some locum doctoring or lads, I need you to vote about whether or not I'm going to take client X. But I think a good solution would be for MPs to have to do a vote of their constituents. Just a straight yes, no. I've been offered this job. Will you accept it? Yeah, that is the arrangement that most like if you're in the type of job where you might have some other kind of like second side gig for any other reason that is like you know that's the arrangement of a you know a therapist who's not running their own practice who wants to write 
a book about psychotherapy. That is a normal workplace arrangement. I think that would, you know, work quite well. Not least because I think that in of itself would police a lot of the the dodgier stuff. Like, I mean, actually, so in some ways, although we've used Philip Dunn as an example because he's in the news, I kind of feel in some ways he's probably just, yeah, like... <laughs> I don't really know why an aerospace company thinks they need to, like, give conservative MPs money to ask for more <laughs> defence spending. Uh, it's, you know, not historically my experience. Broadly, it would mean that they would only do the things that they really felt they could defend, i.e. the things they mm. believed in already. Um, it would also mean that their voters were much more likely to be aware of, like, the various sort of outside interests than they had. Yeah, and then you would obviously have some sensible restrictions, right? Like, I don't think I need to have to, like, have a vote about Diane Abbott writing her memoirs. That doesn't seem to me as a Hackney North constituent as a good use of anyone's time. She should obviously be able to write her memoirs. But yeah, that's what I do. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague Stephen Bush. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.